This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about The Long Goodbye, the 1953 novel by Raymond Chandler, and starring his uh, famous detective, Philip Marlowe. Who here has read uh, any other Philip Marlowe stories or novels? No. I've read... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, that's my answer, the long and short of it. The long answer is no. I've read short stories of his, and I've read, um, oh gosh, is it The Big Sleep? Yeah. The one that's with the two daughters in San Francisco that was made into the Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart. I think so. I think, I think, I think that's, that's The Big Sleep. Yeah, Big Sleep. Is, so. yeah. yeah. I've not read so. any of them. I've, I've not read any noir. I know uh, Julie and Scott have been uh, doing some noir stuff on uh, well, Good Story, but I'm... Double Indemnity, which... He co-wrote with Billy Wilder. So, Raymond Chandler. So, Raymond Chandler. Um, what a guy. Uh, well, knowing knowing now our levels. Um, and you, Jesse? I, uh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> have you read all of them or a lot of them? I, I wasn't sure if I'd read this. I'm pretty sure I hadn't. But I think the problem is is I did read everything, but I read the abridged versions read by Elliot Gould. Ah. They're very abridged, but they're very well done. Hmm. Uh, this story abridges actually quite nicely. <laughs> it's not that it's too long. Uh, it's just that it kind of is it, long, too long. It is long, but it's not too long. Mm-hmm. The, but the thing is, is there's a lot of material that is just spending time with the detective and not plot. Mm-hmm. Right, you sort of forget about the plot for long sections of this book. Well, I think, and this is something I've heard before, and it's a problem I had with the Big Sleep. Chandler just, you're you're right. He will kind of just go off down these trails, but when you look at them, they all are connected with the plot. It's just this one is supremely complicated. And for instance, this I had listened to the Ray Porter reading, mm-hmm. and because Audible or whoever has got all these now that came out with him reading, which I don't think he's the best narrator for it. By the end of it, I was fond of him, but uh, he didn't convey the smartness, I think, very well. But anyway, um, and when I got a physical copy of this to read through for this, I'd totally forgotten the huge surprise at the end. That's how complicated this is. It's pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one, I think it's the Maltese Falcon. Is is that the one where the author, uh, that, that's Dashiell Hammett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the author uh, was consulted on the scripts. It's, it's one of the uh, writers or the actors wanted to know what actually was going on in this section of the story. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> I think that was actually, I think that was the big sleep when Humphrey Bogart you might, you might right. read the book and You're, said to the director, that's right. who did it? And they went, we're not sure. They asked Chandler, who went, I don't know. Uh, that's the <laughs> thing is, is uh, okay, so. But there is I, a, in the book, there is a conclusion, so I don't know. Well, though, uh, here's the problem. I have lots of questions, and I, I started off uh, with the book, and then I switched to the 1978 audio drama, which is an hour and a half, uh, three episodes. 
Then I started watching the Japanese, uh, <laughs> a five-part miniseries. <laughs> How was that? I want to talk about that. It was that. very interesting. Oh, did you watch it all? I myself? did. I watched it all. Awesome. My link didn't work, so and oh. I didn't have time to get into it at that point. But I was like so interested to to see that. Then I I started the uh, 1980 no 1990s I don't know recent version BBC version maybe 90s or 2000s um, which is also an hour and a half and then I watched the 1978 movie uh, 1973 movie and then I finished off the book so I. I That's have all the much. various versions. Yeah, it's too much. I overdosed. <laughs> I, I, I did, too. It's did been you? a long haul. Yeah. yeah. Find me on the side of a road. <laughs> yeah. i into a taxi. <laughs> circling. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I have a lot of questions. Uh, the first one I wanted to ask, uh, uh, I'm going to ask it in a minute. First, I want to point out that uh, this is not a noir book. Um, <laughs> hard boiled, right? It's hard boiled. Uh, now, I gotta point out the difference. So, hard boiled is usually with detectives, almost always with detectives, and noir is typically not with detectives. Oh, and one of the reasons is noir's stories kill their characters or virtually kill them off uh, at the end well, because they can't they can't endure is basically what it is. Um, you can have a hard boiled story. With noir elements, but hard boiled is is a sort of a style of approaching the world rather than uh, a s- sort of um, judgment of a sort of a Greek tragedy kind, well, which is what noir is. Yeah, and I liked what on a previous conversation you made it even more of a real basic distinction, which is what I kept in mind because I had also been listening to, oh gosh, what's it called? But it basically it's the Poisonville novel by Dashiell Hammett, which I finally couldn't get through because I was like so much depression, so much murder. Um, but that was noir because you said there's a certain lack of hope and the hard boiled has a certain level of um, at least a touch of optimism or something because, or maybe not optimism, but the detective has a heart of gold. So you have the moral compass there, whether or well, not it's fulfilled. And the noir is, you know, it's like double indemnity, whether you, there is yeah. a detective in that, his heart is broken. Noir is but, much easier to to identify usually um, if, if you're looking at it strictly. But the problem with that heart of gold thing is – um, there's Mickey Spillane's, uh, de- you know. I've detective. never read him. Yeah. Well, he, his, his guys like sort of the opposite of Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe is, he needs to be cynical, more cynical, kind of, um, or maybe not, but he should be more cynical. He knows he should be, but he still acts uh, sort of like with a heart of gold. Whereas the Mickey Spillane is is much more like punchy and kind of like <laughs> kind of like twisted He's and cruel punchy. and enjoys, <laughs> enjoys his, He's his hitty. Uh, yeah, he's hitty. <laughs> well, I don't know. I like your point though that you just made about Marlowe's got to be cynical because of course some of Chandler's best lines, which is what makes me love him, despite the fact that halfway through I was like. 
this goodbye is way too long. You know, a long by the end, you realize there's a lot of goodbyes going on, and they're all going on too long. But that was said in the book. Yeah, say that again, Mike. How many times the word goodbye came up? It was yeah, all over the yeah. Everybody was saying goodbye all the yeah. time. Yeah, and a lot of times yeah. with little comments about it. When you yeah. say goodbye, you yeah. die. Like, yeah, when you, you say goodbye, you yeah. And I see you in a lineup or whatever you said. Right. Yeah. You never right. say goodbye to the cops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was, I loved that. It was like, because they're always going to look for you in a lineup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so great. <laughs> and even the people who are um, his friends are still willing to use him. Like, you know, the good cop at the end, he's like, ha, 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 I caught this guy, Menendez, or whoever it was that he caught by letting him get punched around for a while while they staked the house out. Yeah. Mm. So when the cops yeah. saying goodbye the night before, and he's like, this is just quiet enough. Well, goodbye. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> Indeed. So anyway, I'm sorry, oh. but it's the cynicism is, is wonderful, but it is there because he knows that he cares too much. Yeah. Which is why he goes through the entire book being unpaid as, um, the, one of the cops points out, I guess it's his friend where he's, and I thought I had marked it, but it was this thing where he's like, do you ever get paid? Did you see yeah. that? He said, he said, I have $1,200 in the bank and mm-hmm. a few, some bonds. Like, cause he made a point of saying how much he's got, like all the money he's turning down, turning down, turning down. And he has not, nothing. Mm-hmm. He's a portrait of Madison. Yeah, but he's not going to spend yeah. it. But he's, nope. it's a sentimental keepsake. And there's $500 in the coffee can. Yeah, he yeah, says... He said he's um, gonna that, which almost doubles his value. Yeah. Well, and in yeah. 1953... That's a lot of that's money. What, he was frugal or got some big scores because he says... Um, he's talking to the cop. And he says, I'm a romantic, Bernie. I hear voices crying in the night and I go see what's the matter. You don't make a dime that way. You got sense, you shut your windows and turn up more sound on the TV set, or you shove down on the gas and get far away from there. Stay out of other people's troubles. All it can get you is this smear. Last time I saw Terry Lennox, we had a cup of coffee together that I made myself in my house and we smoked a cigarette. So when I heard he was dead, I went out to the kitchen and made some coffee and poured a cup for him and lit a cigarette for him. And when the coffee was cold and the cigarette was burned down, I said goodnight to him. You don't make a dime that way. You wouldn't do it. That's why you're a good cop, and I'm a private eye. I love that little wake that he holds for for uh, Terry Lennox. I thought that was Wasn't really that really great? touching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it really showed his heart and soul. And that's those are the little extra details, like when he talks about going home one night and he's upset. But he's like, well, I tried watching TV, but the fight was no good. And then I tried this channel, and that was no good. And then I just turned it off and played chess by myself. By myself. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just like, ooh, an intellectual, you know. But it's just thrown (laughs) in there. I want to go back to uh, the very beginning. And there's there's a mystery to me. And maybe it's easily solvable by just go backing, backing backing up and rereading uh, a special section of the book. But remember that uh, suitcase? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pigskin suitcase. Isn't that still sitting in his in his, his closet? 
I thought what's his name Terry Lennox took it when he went to Mexico when he had yeah. him drive him down to the plane. I think you might be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah he forced fun. it. He forced it on him. He didn't want to take it, but I think yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because that's how someone recognized him for sure when he was getting on the plane, and they were cops were able to link him to Terry Lennox. There was yeah. a, a few other pigskin. Yeah, things there was. Yeah. Um, his his uh, Eileen had something pigskin too. Was it gloves yeah. or something? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's it, there's so many unanswered questions. So, uh, how about the central mystery? Okay, <laughs> who murdered that lady? So, Who murdered Terry Lennox's wife? You don't think it was Eileen? It was what's her I name? Yeah, it was Wade's wife. Is that Eileen? Yeah. How do we know? How do we know that? Because she said so. Because she admitted it and killed herself. Lots of people Phil, admitted it. Philip Marlowe said she did. Yeah, but he bum, was wrong. Bum, bum. <laughs> yeah, but they went off and left her alone to decide what to do for herself, and that's why when she killed herself. Yeah, and so I think to he. It. I think that that was his test. Yeah, and she passed it by she proving he was it. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What did she mean, though? I wish I could have killed them both at once. Be- where was her husband she's then? About her husband. Where was yeah? But where was he when she when she uh, allegedly killed? I think she did kill Sylvia. Where was she her husband? She killed Sylvia and she killed her husband Wade. No, I know, but she said I want to kill them at the same time. He had already left the the tryst they were having. I think. He had uh, left because he, he couldn't perform. Is that what it was? Well, we we don't really know. I think because her she's she is in other. If she was a more successful version of herself, she would be the classic femme fatale, right? Everything she said is calculated to screw out uh, the the hero, right? And I think she's trying to do that the whole time, but I don't think she uh, she's not very good at planning. <laughs> She's no Linda she's, you know, she's muddled by all her drugs. Yeah, she she's yeah. not sincere uh, enough yeah. either. Yeah. You gotta be a Linda Loring for that. <laughs> Whatever her name was. Yeah. Um, but, but remember she also she had this this story about uh throwing the suitcase full of <laughs> yeah. clothes and tools. <laughs> yeah. Oh, into what about the, the wire at the feds? <laughs> yeah. uh, right. But uh, for a minute yeah. I was thinking that's the suitcase. I know. I thought oh. that too for a minute. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, no. But what but, about? Oh, go uh, ahead. What, yeah. What about Sylvia's face? It was, you know, beaten to a bloody sponge. Know, isn't that gross? It. I mean, was um, was um, Eileen strong? I mean, is that something that? I think she, if you're well, I could imagine that if if, if, if this is the woman that's. You know, she's been sleeping with yeah. the two men. This is—it's like it's. She's like the worst thing in her life. Yeah. yeah. And she's slightly—you know—she may kind of black out. I mean, I don't think she did, but you know, when you go when you go crazy mad and you can't even. Yeah, see yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's here's a problem. Okay. She she is caught in a lie, right? Throwing the suitcase over—that's that's a lie. And then she she sort of says, "Well, I, you know, I'm so confused of late, <laughs> or whatever. You know, <laughs> I'm having women's problems, or whatever. She, you know, my husband's kind of mean, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's her excuse. But if if she has to make up a lie about throwing the clothes in the lake because th- there was so much blood, when he asks her, "What about the blood?" Right. Mm-hmm. She also said uh, that, uh, well, we infer that she she beat uh, this other woman's face, you know, basically into a bloody pulp. Um, 
And we also know that she was shot prior to the beating. Mm -hmm. Why would she lie about the blood not spattering in the same way once the lady's dead? Why would she she... doesn't know. But she's the one who did it. No, well. Is what we're inferring. And so that's why I'm not sure that she did do it. Because she wants to make it seem more real. She does. Yeah. But she's, wouldn't yeah. she, couldn't she have said, you know, everything she could have said, my husband shot her, then he beat her to beat her. Uh, and then the so she keeps the lie true up to the point of who uh, who's actually doing the beating. First, we're assuming she's a good calculating liar. I think everything she does is fueled liar. by emotion and drugs and she doesn't remember. She's just saying what sounds good. And so when she's caught in it. She's she's like, ah, oh, damn it! I have no clue. This I was my assumption. I don't know. I think she's trying to implicate, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but I'm not sh- see. Uh, what you who who here watched the 1973 movie? The Elliot no, Gould. Elliot Gould. Movie. Yeah. I've watched yeah. no movies or anything to do with this. Okay, so, so. Uh, I won't ask you to answer this question. Please don't. Um, Seth? No, I didn't watch it either. I read, I watched the um, Q and A that you sent with Elliot Gould, but I didn't watch mm-hmm. the actual movie. Okay. Misa, um, did you watch it? I did. And what did you think of it? Well, I thought it was interesting how they diverged in in so many different ways. Very diverged, right? Very, very different. Yeah, it was, yeah, um, and and the whole not just in terms of plot, but it, but in terms of tone too. Like the way they approach. Yeah, it's got it's 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 a weird movie and a very good movie. It's a very good very, movie. Yeah, very weird. But I movie. but I would like if if I, I I thought this was sort of noir, but I'm not clear on what noir means other than. Well, that makes it noir. Really? That version is very noir at the end. Well, at the end, it, it sure was, but but before that, it was more kind of lighthearted in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. But but one of the reasons I want to bring this movie up is because, uh, by the way, the script's by Lee Brackett, who's oh, right. a science fiction writer, right? right. Also wrote uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Oh, wow. We got, we got some good cred in here. <laughs> um, I, wanted to, I wanted to point out that uh, they change a lot of things in there, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's still recognizably the same book, right? It's the same story, even though... Uh, Marlo gets a visit from Terry Lennox in in the book. It he comes back to Los Angeles. That's not how the movie ends. The movie ends in the sort of the opposite way, right? Um, and uh, I I'm pretty sure that the Sylvia Lennox is still alive. Yeah, she's still yeah, she is still alive in the, in the in the movie. Yeah, wasn't. Or was Wasn't it? it no, it was. Uh, oh, it no, was Eileen. It was Eileen at the end. Mrs. Wade, right? In the car. Right. Was she Mrs. the romantic interest in the movie? Uh, Therefore, they oh. left her alive. No. Uh, just, yeah. Just, so yeah. it was a conspiracy to kill each other's husbands yeah. and wives. Yeah. Right. Um, that's how it is. <laughs> in the movie. Um, and I think that that's actually in the book too, because Mrs. Wade is in love with Terry Lennox, right? Mm-hmm. 
but she and is actually married to him as well. But she says well, she was not she was not in love with him in the book. She says she was not in love with him when she saw what he'd become. So she despises him, and that's one of the reasons she's so fueled by anger. Yeah, but you know what? That's she blames kind of Sylvia, huh? I think that's the kind of I despise you because I love you so much. Well, yeah, yeah, but what she despises Sylvia for is not only having the man she loves, but she can blame Sylvia for turning him into the things that she can see about him that aren't her idealized version. He may have, mm-hmm. he probably was all those things that he still was, or, you know, that we see, but she just remembers the man that she married who she didn't right. know very well when he died. So that was my assumption is that's why she could blame Sylvia for everything and just kind of ignore him. I don't. I don't believe anything. I mean, I'm not sure we should believe most of the characters other than Marlowe. Even he lies to us a little bit. Well, I made some of that up, by the way. That was my inference. So that's. Yeah. No. No. I. I. I totally. I, that's the cool thing about this book, as opposed to like a, a you know, a Sherlock Holmes short story. Right. It's very open. Is very open, and yeah. the mystery that we're we're sort of experiencing rather than solving is at the end just supposition right there is no here is the fact of the matter because remember all that bit about uh the mailbox mm-hmm. oh right, yeah right. i love it's that almost mailbox, as if, we don't know it's almost mailbox. as if the terry lennox mexican guy <laughs> terry lennox <laughs> the mexican terry lennox doesn't know what's going on <laughs> And he's the guy who wrote that letter, presumably. Well, he was trying to lead him astray. And I mean, we do know what happened because Mexican Terry Lennox is the one who, you know, he says, do you know, you know who killed Sylvia? He didn't answer me directly. It's pretty tough to turn a woman in for murder, even if she never meant much to you. So see, he was a rotter from the beginning, but he saw her do it. That's our proof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it is it is nice that it's kind of open like that because part of what we read a lot of these books for anyway is the mystery is a nice vehicle. Yeah. But it's the atmosphere, it's what else the book is saying, it's the character of the detective, even those short Sherlock Holmes stories that you mentioned. I've been re-listening to Derek Jacobi reading The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and a lot of it is just you're carried back to Victorian England. It's the relationship between Holmes and Watson. It's, you know, so much more than just the mystery, which is why you can re-experience it even when you know what happened. And he is just, Chandler is just so masterful at that. Yeah, there's a, there's a humanity to this. We were talking about the heart of gold thing, which is where a lot of it is um, and is kind of the vehicle for this whole thing because, you know, Marlowe easily at the beginning could have, made different choices when he was in custody and um, mm-hmm. you know, made things a lot easier on himself, but also you know, would not have, he clearly saw something in Linux. And even at the end, when a lot of that was disillusioned, he still saw, you know, a glint of it that, you know, mm-hmm. you're a, you're a, you're a good person who wants to do good things. Even if you, even if you do something else and he, he saw something there worth you know, saving or redeeming, and that's kind of the vehicle that drives this whole thing. And I, I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. Mm-hmm. I want to point out that uh, if Brian Alexander were here with us, I think he would be shocked by what we haven't mentioned yet. Um, and I would totally agree with him. Hey, that's what what is I'm going to speak for him that this, <laughs> that all the sympathy and heart of gold stuff, 
This is actually it's because it's a war book, right? Mm-hmm. This the post war. Well, it's much, no, it's about the rich people. That's not a war book. Well, let me tell you, uh-huh. um, we've been reading a lot. I'd of, say this to Brian too. <laughs> we've been reading a lot of um, books that came out in the 1920s, um, books by authors who survived World War One, and uh, once you start doing that, you sort of see the patterns of things coming out that way. In this one, the, the Terry Terry Lennox is is a vet, right? which regiment he's in in the British military is sort of in dispute. <laughs> but ultimately, uh, we're pretty sure he was uh, in the SAS, uh, whatever that was called at the time, right. in 1942 in Norway. Um, and a number of the police officers, I believe, are also vets. Um, a lot of the taxi drivers in this book <laughs> are vets. <laughs> and it's never stated, but it's so implied that uh, Chandler's uh, Marlowe is a vet. Um, and really? I yes, get that very all. heavily implied. He uses the terminology it. all over the place. Um, he never says, I was in Europe. He never says, I was in the Philippines, right? He never says anything like that. Um, it's the one thing that is left unsaid that seems to me very clear. Uh, but the thing is, is all that stuff about, you know, why is Terry Lennox acting this way? Um, well, we sort of talk about his wife and how he's a, a wastrel and, you know, how he doesn't have to work for a living. But think about how the other characters uh, react to Terry Lennox, too. Um, there's the the gambler, not gambler, the um, uh, criminal in... Las Vegas, mm-hmm. uh, right. Randy Sharp, yeah, who turns star? out to be, right. mm-hmm. or star, yeah, yeah, who turns out That's to be it. a commissioner? Is that? Yeah, he's on the police force. Is that right? Well, um, I'm, I'm not. Sh- I, I'm thinking of the the uh, guy who gives him a job, right? Menendez. Yeah, that's, that's Manny Menendez. I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who says he saved his life? Yeah, they were in the war together. That's right. Yeah. Um, the what what is the obligation uh, that g- will give him a job instantly? No matter you know, Marlowe says, "I think you better make sure that this job is real, right? Why don't you call? Why don't you call ahead?" And he says, "There's no need, right?" He says that twice. There's no need. Yeah. Um. He knows that just showing up, and it, when he when Marlowe forces him to call, right? Um. He says he said, "Why didn't you call sooner?" Right. Um. This is the reason he's got those scars on his face. Uh, part of that story is true, right? That he he saved the life of that other guy. Right. And Marlowe, driving down the street or walking down the street outside a club, and he sees this drunk kicked out of a car. What does he What does he do? He says, "Against my better judgment, right?" In the <laughs> after In the aftermath, other people wouldn't have done that. Um, all of the events of this novel be- happen because he picks up a wounded warrior, right? A wounded fellow on his team, picks him up, takes him home, cleans him up, gets him ready for battle again, puts him out on the street and when he thinks he's ready to go. It's it's very much um, kind of like you don't have to be it, – it doesn't have to be your friend to be – 
picked up and put on the litter and yeah, call But he does that for all kinds of people. And I would say that you, I see what you're saying. But let's also remember, I was just reading about double indemnity and people were saying, oh, Billy Wilder, he, he was so good at noir because, you know, he'd been through all that awful stuff in Germany before he got out and blah, blah, blah. Well, of course he had. But I can't say that double indemnity was fueled by, you know, Nazi experience getting out ahead of the Nazis just because oh, – what, 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 um, but it's fueled because that's that person's life experience and it goes into it. Where does that go into um, some like it hot, you know? So each person takes and uses all that stuff just as a part of them because what's being ignored when you talk about the war thing is the fact that I think – most of this book, I feel, yeah, Terry Lennox is in there. He starts and he ends it. He's a bookend. He's largely unimportant. He's just the excuse, the pebble that starts the avalanche. Because really, I think what this book is about is pointing fingers and taking names about rich, rich people, how they live, how they don't live up to the obligation they have, and they waste it on drugs and partying and everything else and corrupt police. And it's the effect that the riches have on everybody in this book. Yeah. And so, and that may be because of the war, not because of the war, but that's not, I I don't see it. I mean, it's just in terms of, you know, that's what went into this society. Let me point out why your analogy with double indemnity doesn't work. Double Indemnity is not a war book because it's not based on it, – it's it's set during the war in Los Angeles, right? The guy who's not fighting in the war is the insurance adjuster, right? I'm talking it's, about it, Billy Wilder, and I thought you were talking right, about but, Raymond Chandler. No, no, no. But the movie Double Indemnity is – it's based on a, a James M. Cain novel, right? That is uh, not – Yeah, but I wasn't – the, what I read was not talking about that. It was talking about why well, those Billy are, Wilder was about selfish that. people, right? Whereas this is this is the opposite. Well, no, it's not the opposite because there are selfish people. It's totally in it, about right? rich, selfish people who are wasting their lives. Totally. I, it, well, that's there. I mean, but there's only two or three or four of those people, right? And there's a lot of other people in here that take up three fourths of the book. <laughs> the I'm so all the all the plot, the plot is caused by it. It's yeah, true. the thing that throws those rich, cold people into relief, and the reason we can see them is because you have these flashes of heroism, and it it's what makes those rich lives seem so empty. Is you've got that contrasted against a guy who will throw himself on uh, on live artillery to you know save his, exactly. save his comrades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So, but I don't it, feel like that makes it a book about the war. Well. Seeing Terry Lennox lying uh, on the road, right? He picks him up like a a wounded warrior, puts him on the stretcher, takes him. I mean, not literally, but this is actually what Terry Lennox is is has those scars for, right? So the fact that he, uh, so maybe Misa, do you remember the Japanese version? I I thought they did. A, what's really cool about the Japanese version, even though it's got a lot of sort of comical elements maybe accidentally yeah. is that everything's inverted right because it's not it's not set in los angeles it's set in i don't know tokyo, tokyo or something right and so they he can't be an american soldier <laughs> or a british soldier mm-hmm. he's a japanese soldier mm-hmm. which and so the enemy 
oh, who's the enemy? Oh, it's the Russians. Oh, good. <laughs> if it's the Chinese, then wow. that sort of puts a completely different spin on it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so what did you, what do you think of this contrast and the idea of it as a war book or a, a, dealing in the results of war? being about sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome and people basically. I think there's, a, there's something to that. I, what, what, what did you think of the Japanese uh, adaptation? The, the, Japan, the Japanese one was very interesting. That one was really um, over the top. Like if you haven't seen it, it's, it's over the top, like um, oversaturated lighting and, and real close-ups on, on the steam from a coffee cup and, and, mm. and and like it's really really um <laughs> like a, it's like a, a very very comic book um mm-hmm. adaptation and they went really deep into the a lot of unanswered questions in the mm-hmm. book they answered them they, they <laughs> yeah. like oh wow that, um gave an interpretation of, of of a lot of the whys and they were much more sympathetic to everybody uh, oh, Eileen and and the and the uh, co- the the houseboy was he was just a sweet young boy in that. <laughs> in that. Well, he turns he turns out to be that in this book. I, too. I have to say, Candy might be my favorite character, which I would never have believed oh, most wow. of the book. But at the yeah. end, yeah. And I think okay, I see what you're saying about the war fueling the beginning of it, but I and, feel and like. It, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say in the Japanese one, the war is a very central yeah. to the thing. But I feel like every kind of a book with somebody with a heart of gold has the people who've had to go through the hard experiences that teach them that. And in the case of when these books are all set, that is when those people would have gone through that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I'm not. Let me just say, reading it now, that wasn't my impression. Because these kind of books always have those kind of people littered around. You read the, I was going to bring up later, but I cannot recommend highly enough the first four or five books of Robert B. Parker's Spencer series, beginning with the Godwolf manuscript, which I had read a long time ago when they came out. And then I listened to The Long Goodbye. And then I got wanted some more. So I picked up the Spencer books again and went, Wow, you cannot get somebody who channels this stuff so perfectly in such an homage and yet so originally. And he also is that way. But his um, heart of gold comes from the fact that he had to learn how to handle himself through being he was a cop, he was a boxer, he was a, you know, all these various other things (laughs) that were a different discipline. And so you're seeing him set in the 70s against the university problems and the, you know, I mean, that's just the setting like LA is the setting here. And Mm -hmm. so um, when I, I guess that because I didn't pick up on that in the Chandler stuff and I look at the Spencer stuff and I just go, that's a common story element to anything. And I don't feel like the war experience is so central to this that it couldn't be driven. I, I, I don't know. I feel like a war novel guns a Navarone. Now we're talking. No, no, yep. you, you, didn't, you don't mean what you didn't understand what I meant. No, I'm I not know saying what you're saying. It fueled. I'm not it saying it's a war novel. I'm saying it's uh, it's it, in the same way that the Lord of the Rings is a way of dealing with World War One, which I hate, totally hate that. So that's it, where I'm coming from. So I'm going to oppose you on that because I reject that. Well, um, how does he deal with it? I would say 
by talking about other things, right? So when somebody's in your house and they're dying and they've been dying for a while, um, you could talk about how they're dying all the time or you could talk about other things, right? And that, I think that that's his way of dealing with it. And a lot of people dealt with it that way too. I did a Voyage to Arcturus, which mm-hmm. is a 1920 novel right. by Lindsay. It's and there's no, mention, there's no mention of World War I in it at all. But uh, there's, there are a lot of people who are suicidal. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of question asking about like, what is the purpose of, of oh, a lot of things? I know, but that's like taking Mary Shelley's Frankenstein back to let's talk about how their child died and how her husband ignored it and blah, blah, blah. And then she had this dream. And then she turned it into a book. Yeah, that all feeds the story. But I'm very, yeah. I'm not interested in that. To me, I like to look at what I see in the book. And I get uh, that because I, each I, person's experience goes into that. But you know what? I don't. I don't know. I'll say one more thing about it, and then I I will stop off on it. One of the most interesting things I heard about about what it's like to be a GI in the in the summer or sorry the winter of uh, 1944 in in the Ardennes was it was like being homeless because you're outside. You're, you're really cold. Um, every once in a while, somebody comes by with food or a blanket. Um, and then you have to get up the next day and, and start walking. And then you, you have to try and keep warm the next night. And you have to try and find some food. And, and, and then every once in a while, someone tries to kill you. Mm-hmm. And then you have to get up and you have to do it again. And your clothes are getting worn out. And... You know, you share what you can with your fellow homeless on the move. And that image of, you know, what it's like to be a soldier is not a, a sort of a, the, the non-war one. It's the, it's the war image. It's, it's not, you know, lying in the barracks, getting paid and going to the PX and buying things. It's, it's like just hoping that the supply train's going to come through and you're going to get some coffee. And that sort of just seeing a guy lying in the street, um, not from a war wound exactly, but why is he getting drunk all the time? Mm-hmm. Why is he why is he acting in the way that we, we you know he wasn't born rich and he has lots of hidden secrets and identities that start even before uh, he joined the army, but. There's something about Marlowe acting in that way, just picking up a fellow survivor of the war of life, um, trying to get him home, trying to prevent him from getting uh, thrown in the drunk tank, getting thrown in, you know, POW camp sort of thing. It, it almost feels like it's a war thing. Now, I think there's a very strong argument against it, and that is that. You know, Chandler started writing PI stories about uh, Philip Marlowe well before the war. Um, but I think he says this this is his best book. Mm-hmm. And I think um, just seeing all those taxi drivers you know, read <laughs> escapist yeah. science fiction magazines, um, there's actually uh, twice 
do are people reading science fiction magazines it just says you know a magazine with a martian on the cover i did like that yeah <laughs> um that that sort of um remember what that taxi driver says after he drives him a block he says I, if when if i was in that kind of condition um you don't need to pay me yeah. i wish somebody had come to pick me up when i was in san francisco mm-hmm. right there's something about this sort of uh let's all we're all on the same we're all in the same army, right? Sort of thing going on. And I think it enriches the book in a way that makes it much more than just about rich people. You, you, and, there, may, there, you may, there may be something to what you're saying because, um, like, it, it, there's, you know, I don't think of him as a heart of gold. I think of him as someone that wants to make things right, that just wants to make things right. And, and like, when he describes why he's a pi like he why why is he doing this it's to it's to try and set some sort of reset or or make things you know fix them so he says um what makes a guy stay nobody knows you don't get rich you don't often have fun sometimes you get beaten up or shot or tossed into the jailhouse once in a long while you get dead Every other month, you decide to give it up and find some sensible occupation where you can still walk around without shaking your head. Then the door mm-hmm. buzzer rings and you open the door in the waiting room and there stands a new face and a new problem and a load of grief and a bit of money. Like, you know, like, so he's been through this, if if, if your theory, you know, chaos and, and it's trying to, you know, stop the entropy, like bring it back in. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what this is. Like, as he also says, I, I could have, you know, had five kids and sat in front of the TV, but but I, I can't. I can't do it. I can't have a normal life. Right. Why it's does a, a guy cannot have a normal life anymore? Yeah, it's it's a it was written in the early 1950s. It's it's I think it's reductionist to say that it's about war or even about rich people. No. But it's about, you know, it's about early 50s culture. And that is definitely uh, wrestling with post-war and and now you know by the 50s post-war prosperity there was a hell of a lot of drinking in world in post-war united states you know like the the amount the amount of tv shows where everybody just goes home and has gin all night <laughs> is incredibly high compared to you know what we would say today i mean there are still drinkers here in this world but wine's a lot more popular than gin Mm-hmm. A uh, uh, whiskey, whiskey, yeah. What's going? Yeah, I mean, half gin, half uh, rose, uh, roses, lime juice. That still gets you soused. Oh yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting when you speak of, um, just to go in a different direction for a second, mm-hmm. of influences on the book is when I was kind of looking around, they said that Philip Marlowe said. This was his fa- his best book, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons that they thought he said it was because a lot of it was kind of autobiographical. He'd hit mm-hmm. writer's blocks. He was an alcoholic. He mm-hmm. was losing his wife, and I can't remember if they were divorced or whatever. And so, she was dying. okay, yeah, she was di- that's dying. it. She was dying, and mm-hmm. so I was rereading this, thinking about that, going, "Oh yeah, that explains also." Um, a lot of the focus on that kind of a society and the way that author talks, which, cause I was like, really right. guy, could you just get over it? And I was like, Oh, you're talking to yourself. Got it. You know? And that's not yeah. necessarily cause I also hate when I go back and do that, but it's the same thing of saying this is part of the environment. 
And um, so against all that, against his life or whatever, what you see, and I think the reason the book is so long is he's showing us a complete look at detective work and what it takes. Because one of the things I really loved is all the steps he goes through. They show him with people coming to the office who he turns down or helps. They show um, him going to the three different doctors whose name starts with V. So you get those looks at those people who are, they've all got a scam going of some sort. They've got um, him going to the Karn agency. So you get the independent versus the guy who has sold his soul to the company store, basically, where they're they're um, taping him all the time <laughs> and won't let him share anything. And he's like, well, I have to give this back. They have him with his journalist friend who he gives the big story to at the end. But it's because the guy gave him a ride home at the beginning. That's how he even knows him. Uh, I just really loved the fact that he was working the problem, Mm -hmm. the whole every step of the way. And that's part of, I guess, if they were going to cut stuff out when they abridge it, that's probably part of what they cut out. But that's part of what Mm -hmm. I liked, which was you got the whole sense of the layer of L.A. that he was looking at. And and let's start with the fact that the place these people live, the rich people live, is called Idol Valley. I I was like, like, don't hit me over the head with it, but okay. (laughs) With so. all that drinking, when I was reading it, I was I at first I thought that he was an uh, an ex uh, drunk Marlowe, mm-hmm. um, oh. because because he talks so intimately about what it's like in the he's in the he's in the jail and he says well it's different from being in the drunk tank and then he explains oh. what the drunk tank is like mm-hmm. and he like he he's very very um, detailed about about life of an alcoholic and and how long it takes three years to quit drinking. Yeah. Um, he says all kinds of stuff, and then when I went on Wikipedia, and it said that that um, Raymond Chandler had drinking issues, I I was still trying to figure out whether he meant whether he was it was autobiographical or whether he was actually trying to say that his detective was also a, an alcoholic. No, he he he's well, he's a recovering alcoholic. A recovering alcoholic, yeah. yeah. The, the character is yeah, right because I, the, yeah, the uh, character. He drinks a hell of a lot more coffee than he does gimlets, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The he does take drinks here and there from people, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't. He he does limit himself quite a bit. Um, I liked how they dealt with it in the um, in the nineteen seventy three movie. Remember that scene, Misa, where. Uh, he goes up to Wade's Wade's house. He's called him, and this is, I guess, in the book. It, this is the same scene where uh, he's about to shoot him, shoot himself, right? Um, where he says, "Let's get drunk," and he says, "I don't want to drink with you." Yeah, and he says, "Come on," or whatever, and he says, "Fine." So they drink for a while, but he's he's doing it to try and find the truth. Mm-hmm. He's not doing it because he likes drinking. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and well, so. Go for it. There's also the the F. Scott Fitzgerald connection that um, mm-hmm. we even get. Um, he alludes to uh, the Last Tycoon, which is the book that mm-hmm. Fitzgerald was working on when he when he died. And of course, Fitzgerald fits this um, this um, alcoholic writer archetype pretty well too. And the idle rich of uh, yeah the other the great rich Gatsby folks, yeah you right? get that whole um, that whole connection too. Well, it, I I, I, li- I kind of like the idea that you know Wade is um, in 
this is the other cool thing is is that what kind of books does he write? Historical romance, right? He doesn't write, he doesn't write uh, detective fiction. <laughs> yeah. And then I liked uh, Misa when when they're translating everything into Japanese, not just Japanese words, but Japanese culture, right? Mm-hmm. Did you notice what kind of a writer he was? Was he a romance or something? No, it was really weird. It was a, some sort of 1920s, 1930s. Uh, art artistic fiction um, uh, that was uh, from two English words and see if I can remember what they are. It was like uh, goro porn or something. <laughs> it was like gore and porn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost oh, like no, pillow books. Hero, hero, or something That's like that. Funny. And it was like a combination of sort of uh, eroticism and um, disgusting Mm -hmm. so um it would go up to like today you would say the tentacle sort of hentai stuff uh that is out there is somehow related to that but it in reading about it it was it was sort of like just sort of prurient you know uh in the same way that how does how does wade describe what he should actually be writing uh, you know, if, you know, taking off the layers of dresses and he finds, you know, uh, a woman who's never taken a bath. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. like, um, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, hanging out with Wade is like probably hanging out with Chandler when he's he's been drinking too much and got writer's block. And and he defines himself as a writer. And so, you know, all of the like. Did he hit his wife? Did he throw her down some stairs? I don't think he did. I don't think so. It never felt like it. Self-destructive, right? Not yeah. not uh, wife-destructive. Hmm. So did he kill her? No. He didn't kill that woman, right? His wife did. His wife is, is she's like a really oh, yeah. sort of incompetent femme fatale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing I kind of liked about her is that she was terrible at it. She kept trying. In the in the Japanese version, they um, they made her um, not exactly a might have been sort of a hooker, and and they said and then and then she during the war she like she gave herself to the soldiers or she was made to to give herself to the soldiers and she lost all self respect and that's why she married. um, he, He he sort of brought her out of the gutter. Um, yeah. Wait, the the writer. Ah, but she was Japanese, not Korean. Yeah, she was Japanese, okay. brought up Just in check Taiwan. Just checking. I mean, you said that. Yeah. Right? So went, so um. Okay. Their their Mexico is Taiwan. Their Mexico is Taiwan. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, everything everything is translated right, so that uh, it, but it still ends up feeling kind of weird because it because it's a period piece, and did you even notice, uh, Misa, that he's driving a North American car? It was it, big. It's, I it's noticed left it was hand drive, right? It was left hand drive. They're right hand drive oh, there. Right. So it, it it was it's really it's weird sort of it makes me wonder what it was like in the nineteen fifties in Japan. I mean, they must have had fedoras, right? <laughs> yeah. They must have had uh gimlets. <laughs> I never thought about that, but yeah, depending on how close you were to the western occupying well, they weren't occupying forces, but essentially yeah, the Western not, people that were there. Yeah, you don't see an American soldier or sailor in the whole thing. Mm-mm. 
Um, well, and in the fifties, they might've been, I don't know how long everybody was there, but yeah. I mean, they're still there. Been today, there. So, well, no, yeah. but I just meant um, as a major force, but they would have had yeah. to have been there then still. Yeah. Yeah. Getting things refixed, rejiggered. It's, it's it's interesting to see that translation because whenever you have an adaptation, you're making an interpretation, right? Um, and that the 1973 movie is so different, different, um, and it, it feels like a jazz version of this. <laughs> yeah, book, right? he, when he talks to himself like syncopated, like yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's got some things going on. There's this famous line that he says over and over. Seth, you heard about it, right? It's okay with me, right? Yeah. Um, and then he says that throughout the entire movies. You know, like some girls want to make hash brownies. It's okay with me, right? And then <laughs> <laughs> the the you know the guys want to take uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger wants to take his clothes off and sh- show you his mustache. The only time Arnold Schwarzenegger's got a mustache, <laughs> it's okay with me. I don't want to take my clothes off, but you want to. It's okay with me. Right. right? And then at the end, at the end of the movie, it wasn't okay with him. He goes down to Mexico and he kills Terry Lennox. Mm. Right. And it's like wow. Right. That that gives it a much more you know. Wow, he is vengeful. He dances off. Yeah. Well, he yeah. There's yeah, no so fellow feeling left at all, and in this book, there's still no. It's that justice. It's bit justice. Of in the same way, it's in the same way that they let uh, Sylvia, uh, is it Sylvia Wade? No. No. Um, that's the one. Mrs. Wade. They let Eileen Wade. I yeah. They let Mrs. Mrs. Eileen Wade, uh, you know, sit with it. That's the justice, right? Yeah. Um. In the same way that, you know, since since Terry won't come back up to him, um, and since he's the he's the murderer in the end, uh, he has to go down to him and and dispense justice, and uh, it makes it have a very different feel, um, but it's still it's still somehow the same story. Yeah, you know, in, like now I'm starting to rethink this whole thing in, in the Japanese version. Um, uh, Sylvia's father was in cahoots with the um, with the gangsters, mm-hmm. and he sent um, he like he helped Terry do this whole thing, and, and it was wow. um, it was it was all all for political gain. But now I'm thinking, maybe like why why did um, Marlowe abandon Terry at the very end? Maybe he maybe he. Uh, because in one of them, okay, in the movie, uh, he did kill him, and in the, maybe he's thinking that he he has more to do with it than because he's not as innocent as he was thinking all along. So mm. maybe no, you have to re-question. It makes you question everything because you can see the writers sort of saying, "Well, why did he? Why not?" Because there's so many sort of red herrings, or if there are, if there maybe they're not red herrings. Things that just happen that make you sort of, you well, know, the, the pigskin suitcase is, is, comes up more, you know, there's more than one suitcase. There's more than one person who who just do, says or does something that makes you question, reframe everything. And I think this is sort of like looking, that's how we actually live, right? It isn't... Um, neat and tidy in the way that you know it is at the end of a scooby-doo episode where <laughs> i did it because i hate you and 
and I wanted to save the uh, the amusement park. I would have gotten away with it too if I weren't <laughs> Exactly. There's no confession well, that ultimately solves everything. There's just sort oh, of shame. Right. Yeah, he says I would never have I would never have come out if you hadn't smoked me out. Right? That's right. So but he didn't really do it to smoke him out necessarily. But see, that's the kind of that's interesting what you guys are saying because the, he let Eileen sit with it. He he kind of just put stuff out there and sees what happens, and that's kind of his style, yeah. I guess. And so at the end, you know, Terry's like, well, you know, um, he he feels bad because he knows Philip Marlowe has changed the way he thinks about him. And he says, well, you know, I was in the commandos and I got hurt and it did something to me. And he's like. I know all that, Terry. You're a very sweet guy in a lot of ways. I'm not judging you. I never did. It's just that you're not here anymore. You're long gone. You've got nice clothes and perfume, and you're as elegant as a $50 whore. And so they talk about, you know, it's an act, and he's like, in here there isn't anything, says Terry. He's tapping Mm. his chest. And so the thing is, is that you feel like Marlo has given up on him, but Marlo hasn't. Marlo is saying, here are my problems, it's kind of like prove to me you're not that way because at the very end he says he turned and walked across the floor and out. I watched the door close. I listened to his steps going away down the imitation marble corridor. After a while they got faint. Then they got silent. I kept on listening anyway. Um, uh, Wait, sorry, I have a marker there. What for? Did I want him to stop suddenly and turn and come back and talk me out of the way I felt? Well, he didn't. That was the last I saw of him. And so he was still giving him a chance. He Mm. was letting him sit with it. He was like, here's why you're disappointed me now that you've pushed me to talk about it. Because he knew that he already knew why he was disappointed, but he had a chance to become better. And so that's, that's the heart of gold. That's the wanting to make it right, which is in a sense, the heart of gold. The heart of gold is wanting to see the truth done and the innocent people taken care of, you know, And so that's, he's not smoke. He didn't really smoke him out. He probably, he suspected whatever he suspected, but he was just letting everybody do what they did. And then, you know, he's, that's a detective. They poke at things and see what happens really. Just now when you were reading that, so Terry said, there's nothing inside. Did he just say that? Or did, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly how they describe Sylvia too. Mm. That's how uh, Mm. there's nothing inside. So now, mm-hmm. now we're we're talking about, you know, two empty people. Well, one's filling with alcohol, the other's filling with drugs, right? Right. There's that because there's that hole inside that they can't face. If they can face it, would it be better? You don't know. But that's the, both, that's the challenge of the book, I think, is that he's they're both he ruined by the war. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> they're ruined by the war. Did Did you notice that? Well, the first or time, whatever. Let's look at Dickens. It's the did, same thing. It's it's the perpetual human problem. That's why this book still resonates. It doesn't matter why it happened. Was it because they were raised in the poorhouse like Oliver Twist and he's a terrible protagonist? That's not what I'm talking about. But, you know, what's the hole that's left inside? What do we do to deal with it? How do we deal with everyone else? That's the human problem. And here's how it's being dealt with in this book. Whatever the reason they have the hole mm-hmm. throughout history. I guess that's why I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. They got a hole. It's the war. Okay, there's taxi drivers. Love right. it. But something, something we can completely agree on is that this book is full of really good quotes. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I, was so I love when, so many lines. When I, when I went to buy it, 
the girl mm. I was look I was in chapters and and I was looking. She said, "Oh, Raymond Chandler, he's so much fun." And I was like, "Really? Why? Why?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I started reading it, and and she's so right. Oh yeah. What is Just, the one? I can't find it, but the one about uh, Americans will eat anything if it's you know between a couple of pieces of hard bread and has some wilted uh, lettuce yeah, on it. Or yeah, yeah. A, a slice of spumoni exactly. would not have melted on her. Right. Yeah. Here's the I found, I got the wiki quote up here. She opened her mouth like a fire bucket and laughed. Oh yes. That terminated my interest in her. I couldn't hear the laugh, but the hole in her face when she unzippered her teeth was all I needed. I yeah, loved it. I know. Yeah, he hooked me with a left with a neat left and crossed it. Bells rang, but not for dinner. <laughs> there was a sad fellow over on a bar stool talking to a bartender who was polishing a glass and listening with that plastic smile people wear when they're trying not to scream. Yeah. yeah. The girl gave a look which you. ought to have struck four inches out of his back. Yep. <laughs> Here's one after he, uh, this is not quite the same thing, but it's like, I didn't expect anyone to jump six feet into the air and scream and nobody did. But there's a kind of silence that is almost as loud as a shout. Here's one for Julie. There ain't no clean way to make a hundred million bucks. Somewhere along the line, guys got a got pushed to the wall. Nice little businesses got the ground cut out from under them. Decent people lost their jobs. Big money is big power, and big power gets used wrong. It's the system. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Maybe that's why I thought what I did. Here's here's the one for Seth. Uh Americans eat anything if it's toasted and held together with a couple of toothpicks and has lettuce sticking out of the side. (laughs) Preferably a little wilt. That's the one. one. That is it. Oh, here's a briefcase one. He sat down near his briefcase on the far side of a scarred oak table that came out of the ark. Noah bought it secondhand. <laughs> Ooh. That's an old briefcase. It's an old briefcase. Um, did you guys notice that when um, when he told Terry to bug off the first time, he, they had been going to the bar at 5 o'clock every day, or every time they went to the bar, it was 5 in the afternoon, 5 in the afternoon, 5 in the afternoon. Right. And then... What time was it when Terry came? No- and and he said, what he said was, um, I am tired of listening to you talk about yourself all the time. I'm leaving, right? Mm-hmm. And then when um, when he came back, he came back at 5 a.m. Hmm. And he wasn't talking about himself anymore. Like it was the complete, op- the com- he, he, complete he's, other he's- end. He is, that's the thing is, there's something about that final speech saying, you know, who is Terry Lennox? He, he became a Mexican, right? He, even after he's been unveiled as, you know, being formerly the man known as Terry Lennox. Right. Um, he has, he keeps a, a, a Mexican syncopation to his speech, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's something also interesting so one of the things that I really liked about this book is how refreshingly unconcerned about politically correctness <laughs> it yeah. is. It, and yet, I don't think there's a, a single racist or biased bone. There's so <laughs> many lines that could be interpreted that way. There's one 
There's one about how when Mexicans feel, they feel much more deeply than, yeah. you know, yeah. and then there's another one. That, oh, yeah. Yeah, when that a Mexican is dishonest, you'll never find a more dishonest. And when they're more, you know, like there's so many lines where you say, oh, so racist or so genderist or whatever. And I just love how unconcerned they are with that in this book. All the characters and the yeah. writer. Because it's of the time. It's of the kind of thing that probably nobody would have really thought about much then. But you also know if he saw Candy in trouble or whatever, he would have gone to help him. It didn't matter that he was Mexican yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It so was just a description. Just when you're dealing with him, when you're first dealing with him, he seems like a, uh, you know, a stereotype or something, right? Um, if If you're not really sensitive to these sorts of things maybe you you might uh not think that but i mean the fact that he's got a knife right um he's twirling it around but in every subsequent meeting you get a little more granular sort of um sense that he's a real person and everybody in this book is a real person Mm -hmm. right there's no fake characters that all have some motivation of their own some story and sort of applying the rule of you know generosity and sympathy seems to sometimes uh, elicit you know oh he is a real person Mm -hmm. as a result sometimes they take advantage of that and that that's the problem with having a heart of gold is you're easily taken advantage of so you need a cynicism right sort of in the background that's that's a shield Right. When Terry, uh, Terry Lennox says, I just need some money to bail out my suitcase. I'll sell my suitcase and I'll go. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I'm not going to give you money. Right. But then actually he does. Mm-hmm. Right. And after a certain point, you sort of have to, you know, how far am I going to go with this? So in, in the Japanese uh, version, Misa, you notice that they're the way they dealt with each other was very weird compared to how it is in the book. Um, they Terry Lennox and uh, yeah, Terry, and the, the, the Terry Lennox was look, was looking up to um, Marlo and he wanted mm-hmm. to stop him at, at every point. And he, he wanted to be like him. He thought he could, if he, if he, if he hung around with Marlo long enough, it would, I th- it was like he, you would clean the war off me and I would be yeah. you. I want to be you. Was yeah, it was saying. not that sort of a relationship of friends, mm-hmm. but a relationship of debt and, uh, um, yeah, sort of. Uh, it doesn't. It, it can't be perfectly translated, right? It can't be perfectly uh, changed into, you know. Well, it sounds like that shows you more about how the Japanese think about it. Exactly. Then you know, it's a reflection of Japanese culture through that story. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot. Whoever did the subtitles did tons of footnotes. Yes. Oh, really? oh wow! Trying to explain things like what, what the concepts were, and you know, here's a famous Korean wrestler. Oh. <laughs> like, okay, I understand Thank the you. context. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, that how thoughtful of them, really. That's really cool. It was yeah. very interesting. Very interesting. I'd like to say also one thing I noticed the second time through, and I'm not sure if it's because it was the second time through or because I was reading, and so you can take it in differently, but. I really loved the way, you know, for one thing, Chandler would do things like he'd have little bits of description and you need some little bit of description. But he I noticed he would describe things that you didn't expect, like over here, there was a bird chirping and blah, blah, blah. And it quit. And he'd move on and you'd go, oh, well, and there was one point where Mrs. Wade has come to his 
house to say, please, please come and help find my husband and, or help my husband work or whatever it is and quit drinking. And, um, she's leaving and he's walked her to her car because it is 1953. And so the car was gone and he says there was a red oleander bush against part of the front wall of the house. I heard a flutter in it, and a baby mockingbird started cheeping anxiously. I spotted mm-hmm. him hanging on to one of the top branches, flapping his wings as if he was having trouble keeping his balance. From the cypress trees at the corner of the wall, there was a single harsh warning chirp. The cheeping stopped at once, and the little fat bird was silent. I went inside and shut the door and left him to his flying lessons. Birds have to learn, too. Which is wow. another great line. But also, you're like, wow, is this talking about her because she can't find her balance? Is it talking about him because he's trying to balance himself and all this stuff? And I was like, damn, you know, mocking her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's open to making your mind up ready for Mm -hmm. it's priming Mm -hmm. you for all sorts of things. Right. Exactly. It's it's rich. It's um, as was it Seth or whoever said that. Um, But yeah. And when you're when you're kind of thinking about it that way, you suddenly look and go, oh, okay. Some of it's description, but some of it is more. And I, it I like that. On one level, I think that's 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 the cool thing is that it's not just a detective story, and it's not just. Uh, I mean, I, I love revisiting books like this. There's so much of their time, right? How much does mm-hmm. a how much does it take to, you know, cross the street? Um, how much is a sandwich, right? You know, <laughs> that, little, uh, that little detail and what people, you know, everybody seems to be drinking their night away, right? Well, I think that was, you know, people did do a lot of drinking. They did. Well, people didn't think about it the way they do now. Now we've got a different way. They couldn't. They were so drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, my parents had a lot of parties and they drank the way they talk about in here. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad had a drinking problem later, but not then. And um, they just, that's just how everyone socialized. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give you another one of these uh, with sort of my, (laughs) you're not going to like this, Julie, but I got to do it. Uh You guys just get ready. Oh, you guys, the movie airplane it's one of my favorite movies okay so remember (laughs) the main character in that he's a pilot who can't fly anymore right and he he has a drinking problem and it it shows him on the air having (laughs) drinking problem brings the shot glass up to his eye right (laughs) i don't even remember that Um, and then he has all these flashbacks during the war right (laughs) whereas the japanese zeros are coming I mean, he's trying to come in for a landing on the aircraft carrier, and and he says, "You're too low, you're too low, right?" <laughs> and so he has this drinking problem. But the thing is, is he's not able to have been in World War Two. Right. <laughs> movies like 1978 or whatever. <laughs> that actor, it wasn't even born probably yes. until you know five years after the war. Um, <laughs> so, um. It's sort of out of context. It's just hilarious. And I thought it was hilarious at the time. But <laughs> if you were a person who, uh, you know, was an adult at the time that movie came out, I would think it it's like it's still sort of it's still sort of true. Right. That uh, we're always going to have this sort of um, legacy of, of the cultural baggage that each um each generation grows up with, right? Mm-hmm. So none of the kids that I am teaching or tutoring now 
knows who the Flintstones are. And it's very sad. How it sad? Yeah. <laughs> it is sad, but it's also not that sad because I mean it's it was it was interesting and fun, but sure. I can't say it was the greatest uh, cultural no. experience that you know it's not going to be like Shakespeare. I mean, the vitamins tasted good though. <laughs> they were delicious. They still may be m- yes. being marketed to older people giving their kids Flintstones vitamins and not the kids don't even know what Flintstones are, right? But that even is sort of the echo of an earlier, you know, the honeymooners sort of style. Yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that That's sort right. of. We've got the Simpsons. Well, they, it, yeah. not the good Simpsons anymore, but the older Simpsons were good. <laughs> cultural, that was cultural carrying echo. that legacy on. The history behind everything is very important. And so going back and reading a book like this is like visiting. It, it is kind of like time travel. It's oh, so yeah. strange mm-hmm. yeah. have a book that is so good at time traveling you like this. Because I do feel like I was in the 50s oh, for a while. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you've been to L.A. to some of those older neighborhoods that have these tiny houses, but with the orange trees in them, just from taking Rose out there and moving her. She was living in a spot that was right next to a very old neighborhood. And we were driving around going, oh, my gosh, I can now see how he could take three steps and be from his car to the front door because (laughs) these houses were about five steps across, you know. And it's so reading this, I haven't been to the rich parts but the other parts that he was going to, where he's, you know, um, his little office that's not in a great spot and all that, I was just like, oh, my gosh, this really evokes that area for me. So it was really neat reading that. His there kitchen was, was a, outdoors. Uh, his kitchen was like he had to go out. Yeah. Like a little covered, like a walkway or something to his mm-hmm. kitchen to make his coffee, which I thought was really mm-hmm. cool. There was a game a few years ago um, called L.A. Noir. Uh, with an E on the end of noir, of course. Um, and it, in it you play a, um, it's a third person perspective, so you're sort of following over the shoulder of your character, right? And in it you play a police officer who, you know, starts as a foot patrolman and works his way up to becoming a uh, detective, um, and it's set in the 50s, uh, post-war, or maybe late 40s. Um, and they reconstructed a huge part of Los Angeles uh, in in game so that you could get in a car oh, and okay. start driving and you'd be driving for like 10 minutes and there's still, you know, businesses and cars and things rolling by you. This is by the same people who made the uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto games, you know, mm-hmm. a big those maps are right they reconstruct los angeles all the time in those things but in this case everything is like 1950s and so you see all these weird you know old cars driving or i guess late 1940s is like 48 and they do um sort of variations on stories like uh chinatown you know the movie black dahlia Mm -hmm. untouched um and L.A. Confidential, which is a much more recent film, but set in that period. And playing the game is kind of like spending time, because you can get out of the car at any point. Go to the airport, you can drive drive down the the Los Angeles River, right? You know, you can go anywhere in the, the whole, you can walk up to people's houses and many times you have to, to do the investigations, right? You there's been a murder on a street. You have to go canvas the mm. neighborhood. 
it is like revisiting that. But the difference between that game and this book is sort of the interactions are much more, uh, I don't know, stilted. Mundane, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you're busy doing the investigation in a very sort of police procedural way. Here, we don't know what is part of the investigation until uh, the character either reveals that to us or it accidentally happens to be, oh, hey, I'm in the middle of an investigation here, right? Mm-hmm. And so no matter how fun games are, I, I don't think that they are the same kind of experience as, as, um, as spending time in a, in a book written in the period of whenever it is. And well, they're really a story, living. but they're just like the Flintstones in a sense. They're just flatter. Yeah. yeah. You're having to provide more of it yourself, and that's not quite as good as for back in time. Hey, so you've read a bunch of Chandler. What's your favorite Chandler, or do you have a favorite Chandler? Uh, I would have to say this one. Oh, really? Okay. I just <laughs> I, was. I by the way, Julie, you know, um, your guy Robert B. Parker wrote a uh, the final yes. book, finished the final yes. book of. Um, Heard it was terrible. Yeah, it's not great. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've read a bunch of them. I remember this one being good, and I believe I was right. So, also, uh, did anybody else listen to the Joe Porter narration? Ray Porter, yeah. Ray, Ray Porter, yep. I'm sorry. Yep. yep. Joe Ray. Sorry, Ray. It was, it was passable. Uh, I, it was good. Visible. I liked it. Oh, you liked it? Okay. Yep. Seth, you were going to say? Yeah, it was fine. It was, I, I don't have any... Uh, guys doing female voices, it's always a tricky um, to pull off, you know, how much you want it. So his, yeah. his women were a little too, uh, he was a lot trying of a little too hard, but, uh, my sister thought his voice was, uh, uh, you know, he was, yeah, bad at doing female voices, but well, he just, it was interesting because he, I know why I called him Joe because I know him from the Joe Ledger series by Jonathan Mabry, which he's always done. And it's, very much like that, just in a bit of a more forceful way, because Joe Ledger isn't necessarily the smartest pencil, you know, or the sharpest <laughs> pencil in the drawer. But, um, but I was surprised at this because I expected a little bit more snap or a little bit more smart, and so that's why. But by the end of it, I was fond of him, um, just because I'd listened to it so much that I guess I, I'd. He did the Mexican stuff, the Mexican characters, uh, really well. I thought. Yeah. Menendez and Candy, he did. He did a yeah. great job with. So yeah, I appreciated yeah. that because that would have really ruined it if he had done a bad job with those. <laughs> I think, so he's never been great at female voices, but I was just surprised that the reading was so similar to what I'd heard him do for something else. So that's I was just curious to people who were coming to him fresh that i would recommend the elliot gould version of all of the he, he did i think all of chandler's books uh, including poodle springs but um they are i think they're all abridged yeah. if not most of them uh but the thing is is they do abridge nicely it's not that they're you know they're nicely abridged mm-hmm. and i don't normally go around recommending that but <laughs> since um since you get Elliot Gould, it's a trade-off. He is really, I mean, in that, Seth, you saw that interview with him, yeah, right? Yeah, he's, he's well-spoken. Uh, well, he's he's he, he's a weird speaker, um, but um, he did seem to think that that was, you know, a career, a, a, a high point of his career. Mm. And I I think the movie is, it it's a Robert Altman movie, which is, probably explains most of the uh, weirdness. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And he's not really well known for his his mysteries. Right? <laughs> um, oh, a uh, Altman crime movie. Oh, great. It's not usually what people think of. Um, he's either on but, or off. It just depends. So. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I listened to some of the abridged one and, mm-hmm. um, and it was, yeah, it was fantastically read, but what, what was lost, what was lost in the, in the Japanese version and, and in the movie and in the abridged one was all those Chandlerisms. Like those fantastic oh, lines yeah. that make this whole thing worth reading. They give you the story, but they don't give you the, like the the spirit or the 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 heart of it. Yeah, and um, or the laughs, or the laughs. Yeah, See, and 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 I was think I was watching the um, it, like in the movie there was no Linda Loring, was there? There was there. Did he completely get rid of that love interest? Yeah, yeah. They got rid of a lot of people. Um, there's a collapse, a collapse of characters. Yeah. So, but in the book, in the book, Linda says to him when she's propositioning him, she says, well, what have you got now? An empty house to come home to with not even a dog or a cat. <laughs> but but what, how does the movie start? It starts with a cat. It starts with a cat. So they got rid of her and they gave him the cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, a cat's a good idea. He needs someone. <laughs> well, uh, what Gould was saying in that interview was that, um, yeah, there's no cat in the book, right? You can buy a copy of, or um, Michael Connolly was doing the interview, and Michael Connolly said, you know, I still have the book from when I, I bought it after watching the movie, and it has you on the cover with a cat, and there's no cat in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, there's something cool happening in that the sort of low, lazy three o'clock in the morning uh, introduction to a character needs to feed his cat, right? Mm-hmm. Something special about that. So, and we never see the cat again. No, right? The gone. cat abandons him. It, it, it is. It, there's the true noir part of the story, right? Is that the cat abandons him because he fails to feed <laughs> the kind of food yeah. that it is come become used to. In fact, in fact, the cat is is Sylvia Lennox, right? She's she, and. It's a sim- it's very symbolic. Very mm-hmm. well. And apparently, what Elliot Gould said about that opening shot in the movie is it establishes the theme of the mo- one of the themes yeah, of the movie yeah. is that you can't lie to a cat. You know, you can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They demand truth, and uh, that's it. you can't lie to a cat. And then he and then he killed uh, uh, Terry at the end. That's right. Uh, yeah. Um, is. <laughs> Did you notice all the, it, you, the the sunrises and the sunsets in the Japanese version? Mm. It was all yeah. over the place. Mm-hmm. And then um, and I and then I, I read a line in the book that says that Linda Loring was wearing a silk robe, the color of a sunset, in a Japanese print. Mm. And I was oh. wondering if you know, like when somebody reads a book and they and they think, what's going to inspire me? What am I going? Like it seemed like that was an interesting thing. It's like they took it and they and they worked it as in part of their interpretation, like the time, the things that they take and focus on. It's true. There's been two BBC adaptations. It's not like they're they're loaded with American accents over there, right? Right. <laughs> getting BBC. better. There's been two BBC adaptations. There's been one Japanese miniseries and just one American movie. And the American movie is not set in the period, right? Yeah, set, yeah, oh, there wasn't a Robert Mitchum. Version? No, 
Oh. I mean, he must have done a different Chandler movie. That there, was, there's lots of Chandler movies, but no. But I mean, Robert Mitchum. I thought he did the Long Goodbye. It must never. have been a different one. Okay. There was a there was an there was a TV movie that came out in uh, 1954, I think. Um, live action, uh, live action, not live action. It was filmed live. Mm, mm-hmm. But it's it's apparently been lost. So yeah, well. we'll never see that version. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Yours is perfect. (coughs) Should be. Ish. Fiction. Oh, wow. I think think somebody's uh, Skype went off for a minute. My my Skype went off for a second. I lost you for a couple of minutes. Oh, a couple minutes. Wow. Well, maybe a minute. Okay. <laughs> Time is elastic. Did you yes. notice the, the there was one one paragraph that stuck out because it was really strange. I mean, it wasn't strange, but like the way it was written was so outside of the rest of it. When he was when Doctor Veringer was um, mm. talking to Wade in the um, when he had him locked up, which yeah. in mm. one of the versions <laughs> in the Japanese version they had him in um, in a straitjacket. Like he, he oh, could wow. go anywhere, but but he actually says, "You called me up in the middle of the night, and you were in desperate condition. Right. You said you would kill yourself if I didn't come." Like he he like right. laid out the whole thing, you know, like exactly what you what they tell them writers don't do don't do right, did right, right. all of that stuff. I was in for a bad spell. I, w- I need five thousand dollars. I I need to take care of Earl. Like he said all this stuff as, as if somebody was listening but which was i thought it was strange i was i didn't understand why he wrote it like that and then later marlo said damn if it didn't turn out just as though somebody had written a script for it (laughs) (laughs) i could see him rereading it going damn an info dump you know what acknowledge it and move on well i like that i think there might be something else going on there too Mm. um like it was being uh, so, acted for his uh, benefit. No, no, not even for that. Uh, I mean, that's that's it's he's he's actually implanting the the truth, quote unquote, unquote about what what you're doing here, right? So uh, in the movie version, the doctor comes to the party yeah. and demands money. You owe me the four thousand four hundred dollars. <laughs> Uh, for all those sessions, right? And w- one thing that happens in that party scene that I think is profoundly interesting is this tiny little doctor comes up to this giant of a man mm-hmm. and demands the money. Uh, and then the the Wade is like ranting and raving and swearing and drinking and spilling his drink and every making a fool of himself. And the doctor, little tiny doctor, slaps him in the face and he turns into like a puddle and he goes into the office and he writes the check and then he drowns himself later that night. Yeah. And uh, there's something going on there. I think that's sort of extracted from what's going on in the book. It's not in the, it's not in the book, you know, line Mm -hmm. by line, but it's something about that character of Wade is not a violent man, right? He, he's a man of, uh, he's a, 
um, he's got lots of things going on. One of the things he keeps making fun of Marlowe's lack of knowledge of literature, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah. Why? Oh, oh, why do you assume that he hasn't read these stories? Why? Why do you assume he hasn't read? Um, he just assumes that, and then Marlowe doesn't disabuse him of that idea. But w- w- we don't know whether he knows or not. But uh, Julie, you were saying uh, about how how he's university educated, right? <laughs> he's not just a. Oh, was uh, I? Yeah. Who Mar- Marlowe? Yeah. He reads Where? Flaubert. Yeah, he he's, did mention he's, somebody to them. Yeah. He's 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 a smart guy. Oh, he is smart. And he he had a lot plenty of time to do reading, so it's it's entirely he's read he's read one of Wade's books, right? So it's not like he's completely ignorant of a literature. But when when the end comes, when he kills himself, he's killed. He is killed. Which, in which version? Yeah, in which version? In the right? book, he's killed. In the book, yeah, he's killed. Yeah. How does he die in the book? Eileen shoots his head off. Shoots him and makes it look like a suicide. Yeah, yeah while while, uh, while Marlo's to. out watching the boats. Yeah. So did she plan that? She she she, she, she just it. took advantage of the situation, right? Well, she she did it on the date. She knew, she knew that, that Marlo the... was there, and I think I don't know how much she could have planned it other than because she did. Did she know that that her husband called Marlo? Like she might have planned it. If yeah, she didn't she's... know he called him, then she had to have planned it only within seeing his car on the driveway. Yeah, and then there, there's remember. also and then seeing anyway. him out in by the lake. But remember earlier, the first time Wade called him after the first time he goes out there, he gets a phone call saying, "Hey, Marlo," um, and then clunk, right? And then we find out he's been hit on the head. Oh, yeah. He, "Quote unquote," hit himself on the head, yeah, and then fell out of his chair and hit he the fell out of his chair. He fell so far he fell out into the yard. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like the wife hitting him over the head with like a frying pan? Yeah, or a rolling or pan, a garbage can, and they didn't kill him. Right, drags him out in the yard to leave him to die of exposure. Yeah, but not knowing that he had been um, talking on the phone with Marlo, she just hangs it up. She's not good at anything, really, except that murder at the end, she's pretty good at. She's able to <laughs> yeah. take advantage of all that stuff. And kill herself? Yes. She's competent at that? Well, she did do that. She did take a lot of pills. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking about the thing, though, you said about the, um, where they say, or Misa was saying about the movie script. And I can't find the spot, but sometime during that whole little scene, because <laughs> what a weird couple of people, those, uh, you know, uh, Earl and... <laughs> the doctor and everybody were, but somebody says, well, depending on what movie he thinks he's in now, Earl, <laughs> the flashy kind of, you know, oh, guy. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, maybe that's just referring to the fact that they all act like that. Those two always act like they're in a movie, you know, they're very theatrical mm-hmm. and they have their roles and, uh, you know, Earl's a cowboy today and <laughs> he's yeah. got his whip. And he's doing this and posing, and and in the Japanese version, he's still a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> <Is he? laughs> yeah, and of course, you know Chandler writing this too. He's worked in film, and he has to have an inkling yeah. that this might be adapted at some point. And it's it's interesting what effect oh, yeah. that has on writers. Almost have... everything of his was adapted. Right? Yeah, 
there was a a radio a, a Philip Marlowe radio show. Oh yes, like for a long time. Oh wow, right, really. There was a lot of like demolition of the fourth wall in this. You know, like he talks when he the way he the way he has the writer speaking. It was as if Raymond Chandler was just sitting there talking to you in your face. You know, mm-hmm. you, how can you tell when a writer's washed up? I don't know anything about writers, right? Mm-hmm. Like there was yeah. so many lines like that. Mm. Well, and that's something that it's easy to forget that, you know, now we look at them, they're classic authors at the time. They were just earning a living, although I guess he'd made a good living by the time this book came out. But I was thinking the um, the Thin Man was a series on the radio and Dashiell Hammett wrote a lot of those scripts because, you know, he had to make a living. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't always be proud and starving. You had to give Lillian Hellman something to drink sometimes. So there you go. But uh, it, it's just kind of interesting to think how they flowed back and forth and the effect that that had on them, although, you know, not necessarily that we'd see it reflected. But I keep thinking of Double Indemnity, the, the sad, sad story of that it was so hard for Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler to work with each other that Raymond Chandler became alcoholic again partway through oh, writing the true? script it's he was driven back to drink because it was such a trial for both of them wow oh. don't feel like billy wilder never um he he wasn't giving in to raymond chandler but um yeah so raymond great. chandler when i was looking at the back of the book it looks like he didn't publish this till he was well into his 40s was that right yeah. what was he doing before do you know well, this was his sixth or seventh book, so He's, he was born in England. Um, oh, so he this one. Oh, okay. This is his. Was it his last finished book or his next to the last finished book? No, it was. It was maybe the next to last. I think there was one that comes out in '58, okay. and then. But he'd been writing these and short stories and um, doing, you know, doing Hollywood work and stuff when he. Yeah. It's in the Canadian public domain, you know. Oh, Chandler's okay. been dead for more than 50 years, so. Mm-hmm. I, I just need to scan Mice's copy and I'll put it up. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's right. You got to keep it all Canadian and you're good. Yep. I like it. I think we're done, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep.